This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. So I watched the hearing yesterday and had this idea that somebody should do like the Robert Mueller thought bubbles or mm. like the tr- the subtitled translations uh, of what he was thinking. <laughs> while when, when he said that's correct or or generally correct, like <laughs> true, and then you have the can you fucking read <laughs> or. I take your question as <laughs> go fuck yourself. Take a leap. <laughs> I take your question and I shove it where the moon doesn't shine. I wonder if he was also thinking like, when's lunch? When can I leave? <laughs> no, I, I actually think I wish uh, I was Bob Mueller's interior monologue through that whole hearing would be like a f- like hilarious set of cartoons or 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 YouTube videos. Yes, someone should do that. I think he was probably sitting there thinking, we're all screwed. (laughs) Hello, and welcome to Rational Security, the I Refer You to the Report edition. I'm Shane Harris. I don't know how many times he said, I I think there's got to be a count someplace of how many times Bob Mueller said, I, I rely the on the report. report. I rely on the also, report. Also, if it's in the report, I support it. <laughs> yeah, that was my favorite <laughs> one. If I wrote that or if people in my office wrote that, then yeah, I'm, I'm down with it. If it's as you say. <laughs> because he couldn't flip fast enough to the pages. It was really – there was a kind of like – it seemed like it was becoming a little bit of a race to see like how fast you could talk over Bob Mueller. Uh, at some point, like when they figured out that he was sort of going to have to go thumb through the various pages, it just became like, you know, steamrolling. Well, I thought there was a fascinating contrast between the Democratic and Republican sides on that, where the Republicans clearly wanted to, you know, push and be fast and unsettle. Yeah. And the Democrats had like a helpful screen yeah. that came up. Right. But I also think there there was a bit of a he would assent to anything that there was in the that was right. in the report, and he would not argue with anything that was in the report. So there was this uh, little bit of urge on 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 all sides to say, "Well, it was on page thirty six, and then see if you can get him to agree to it without flipping to it and actually <laughs> verifying." Trust me, that that's what there. it says. Yeah, I'm reading it right here. Oh, boy. Well, we are here in the Jungle Studio day after Mueller's big event uh, with Maron Kaufman, Wittes, Ben Wittes, and Susan Hennessy. Hey, everybody. Hi. Hey. Bob Mueller finally had his close-up. Are we really screwed? Huh? I don't know. I mean, well, I have thoughts. Maybe we'll get to them. 
<laughs> um, Ben's yawning. <laughs> uh, I took a red eye. That's home. true. You have an excuse. You're very tired. Uh, obviously, on the podcast this week, Mueller's close-up. Was he ready for it? Did he change any minds? Did he learn? Did we learn anything new about the investigation? We're going to talk about Mueller's testimony before two congressional committees, and we're going to talk about where do things go from here. Um, so, first things first, I want to kind of go around the table and briefly just get everybody's impression. You've had kind of overnight now to think about this. You know, everybody either watched all or most, I think, of of the hearings and have certainly been thinking a lot about it. So Susan, let's start with you. So the day after, kind of where's your mind right now on what you saw and how he did? So I'm in the unusual for me position of feeling a little Pollyanna about it because I look at everybody else and they're like, this was a catastrophe and he's never going to be impeached now and Bob Mueller, you know, this is a horrible performance and it's all over. Um, I didn't see that at all um, in part because – I didn't think and never thought that Bob Mueller's performance personally was going to be the most important part, which is not to say I thought he came in and gave a great performance, but you know, he, he did fine or, or he didn't do that much worse than what I expected him to do. What was important in that hearing is the conduct and behavior of Congress. And there were two really, really significant things that I thought were both really positive. Um, and you know, we talked a little bit about this sort of in our quick reaction podcast last night. Um, you know, but the first was, you know, the Democrats um, really developing a record, right? They they weren't asking the same questions to get a television soundbite over and over again. Uh, they had coordinated with one another. They talked about saying, I, I, you know, I understand you can't ask this question. I'm, I'm asking to get it on the record because, you know, and starting to tease out those themes. And, and really, they were able to cover an extraordinary amount of ground for Congress sort of in a five-hour period. Um, I, I thought that was really impressive and important and a really good sign that the Democrats understand what the task is, understand what the task was. Um, and, and I think that they approach those hearings with a sense of what they are, which is this is the end of your job and the beginning of our job. And what we're seeing right here is not the galvanizing of public opinion, but rather the, the passing of the torch. It's time for us to do our work. Um, and so I, I think that was really significant. And, um, you know, I, I can't say that I'm, you know, so optimistic that now everything's going to fall into place. But but I am optimistic because um, I felt like the Democrats weren't getting it. I felt like they hadn't read the report. They hadn't dug in on the substance. They really changed my mind on that uh, yesterday. Both both committees, although particularly the HIPSI, um, I, I thought was really impressive on it. On the Republican side, as much as people were sort of off on these conspiracy theories, and there was a lot of sort of weird exchanges throughout the day, um, you know, again, the Republicans were basically, by and large, accepting the factual assertions of the Mueller report. And that means that now moving forward, we all have a common sort of set of understanding about what happened. And I just think that is a light year's leap ahead because we've spent so much time talking about media reports and the president denies something. And, you know, like, where are we and what do we even, what does a member of Congress even accept as the reality? And, and the fact that yesterday we pretty much had Congress saying like, all right, like, no, 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 we, we believe that this stuff happened and now we're going to fight about all the pieces. I actually think that is a huge step forward. OK, Ben. Um, so I actually do think that's pretty Pollyannish. I think uh, very little is different this morning than yesterday. 
except that Bob Mueller is a somewhat diminished figure in a lot of people's eyes. And I, uh, I think that's quite sad, actually. And um, uh, But I take your point that there is value to Congress kind of creating a record of its own rather than – but this record is entirely derivative of the record that Mueller created. To the extent it didn't exist yesterday as a congr- yesterday morning as a congressional record, Congress was perfectly entitled to act on the basis of the uh, executive branch record. And the fundamental problem that exists today is the same problem that existed yesterday morning, which is that the president has done the things that he's done, and one political party doesn't care. And the other, or even is kind of cheerful about it, and the other political party uh, is too afraid to do anything about it and doesn't see its political advantage lying there. And so, I I take all your points, and I'm just not sure I understand how they amount to anything being different today than than yesterday. Wow. So <laughs> I guess I'm I'm more on the Susan side than the Ben side of this spectrum. But I think there were two things that really struck me. One is that there has been a lot of shouting among Democratic Party activists and the Democratic Party base, like, Congress, do your job. You know, why aren't you investigating this? And I think yesterday was actually a really good portrait of what it looks like when Congress does its job. You know, when members of Congress read the underlying material, prepare thoughtfully for a hearing, think about what is the information they're trying to elicit, what do they want to do with it in the congressional record, in the congressional process, when they cooperate with one another in dividing up the labor and they use their time efficiently. And all of the questioning was had a purpose. None of it was just filling air. None of it, as you said, Susan, was just for the soundbite. Even the Republicans who were using the hearing in a very different way had thought about what they wanted to do and how they wanted to use their time. That's what it looks like when Congress does its job. And yes, it's adversarial. Yes, it's partisan. Yes, it is painfully incremental in the way, you know, outcomes are produced from such a process. But this is Congress doing its job, two serious committees starting down a road that may not dramatically change outcomes. They're not going to impeach Donald Trump. They were never going to impeach Donald Trump. But they are building a record in an institution on behalf of the American people that is not just for this political moment. It is for our political future. And I think that we will go back and back and back to that record as we think about how to protect our elections, as we think about what reform our political institutions or our elections may require um, to prevent these kinds of abuses from happening in the future. The other thing that struck me is political journalism and the way it dealt with these hearings. And, you know, that started long before hearing day itself. But the fact that political journalism continues to look at Trump versus the Democrats, everything is a dogfight. Everything is a face-off. Who's up? Who's down today? And they had to put that here, these hearings in that context also. And so all of the buildup was, is Mueller going to give, you know, the tipping point to the Democrats in the impeachment battle? 
which, as Susan pointed out, was a ridiculous expectation and was not, in fact, what happened yesterday. And the New York Times immediately after the hearing had a story up headline, Mueller disappoints the Democrats. Actually, I don't think he did disappoint the Democrats. I think he did exactly what the Democrats expected he would do. And they were prepared for it and they were they used it in the way that they could. So to me, it's just another example that I feel like I see over and over again of a gap between what political journalism is doing in terms of framing what's happening here and what's actually going on. It's a massive disservice to the American public and that depressed me. Yeah, I actually would agree with you on that. I mean, not being a political journalist, but there's this question of which mattered more, performance or content. Um, and you could argue, I think, that Mueller's performance was perhaps not as spectacular as some had hoped. And that kind of comes to the wings of the question of content, which where I come down on is my take was that if you would come to this hearing yesterday as an American who knew very little about Bob Mueller, his report, or Russian interference, I am not sure you would walk away much enlightened, which is not to say that there wasn't information in there. Uh, and it was very dramatic to hear Chairman Nadler and Chairman Schiff sort of saying, isn't it true that, boom, isn't it true that you didn't exonerate the president? Yes. OK, fine. But then you're kind of then switching over to the Republican side where there is all this enormous chaff being thrown up. And in a few instances, you know, real questions about, you know, propriety of the investigation, et cetera. But mostly, let's face it, conspiracy theories and wild hairs. And what about gigan- ism? And what about ism that has been gigantic distractions. And then you kind of come – you're whipsawed back again to the Democrats. And even though I think Democrats beat expectations insofar as it wasn't, you know – discombobulated and disorganized, it seemed like they'd actually kind of planned it out and asked a sequence of reasonable questions. Um, you know, this, it's this five-minute rule again, right? Uh, and it, it, it's difficult to follow. And Bob Mueller, being a clearly reluctant witness, did not do the thing that I thought many people thought would be the most educational role for him, which was to read from the report, right? So you had him saying, yes, if that's what the report says, OK. And the report kind of sat out here as this thing that he, quite frankly, in, at least in the first hearing, clearly did not seem to have a very firm grasp of and in some cases didn't even – really seem to know some of the key findings. I, I just I don't think that it was the moment of public education that a lot of people had hoped for. The kind of, you know, it, it's like, I mean, frankly, I mean, not just to blow smoke up you guys, but like you'd be better off listening to your podcast on the Mueller report than watching those hearings to try and figure out what the Mueller report well, said. Well, like, so, could so, a hearing so, do that? So, but, but That's what? a great question. So, but, and so maybe we put way too much expectation yeah. in this moment, which does bring me to a question, but Ben, you go ahead, but I want us to like to play with, which should he even have testified at all? So a, a couple things. One is I do think some of what people are attributing to confusion on his part or lack of knowing what was in the report may actually be that he was having trouble hearing. Hmm. And that, like he clearly there were a number of times People where, in the room did say it was weird acoustics. That's true. Well, but – and he's – you know, I don't know what his hearing situation is. Yeah. But there were a lot of situations there where there was a very clear question asked about somebody who you cannot have been Bob Mueller and run that investigation and not been familiar with and right. he seemed lost. And and when I see a, somebody in their mid-70s who's having that issue, my, my first question goes to goes to hearing. But I, I – look, I do think there's a question 
Look, the Democrats did better in organizing this hearing, these hearings than I expected, and they were quite disciplined and working with each other rather well. And they organized a set of pretty clear questions, and they actually got answers to them in that sort of cursory yes or no kind of way. But I do think that raises the question, what is the strategic objective of this hearing? Now, if the, li- if the limited strategic objective is to set a predicate for then calling Corey Lewandowski and, and Jeff Sessions and Don McGahn and, and sort of doing a kind of full court press on the fact witnesses, then okay. But then the significance is not the significance of the Mueller hearing. It's the Mueller hearing as kind of curtain raiser. If people think that the Mueller hearing has significance in and of itself, I kind of want to know what that significance is purported to be. I mean, like whenever people talk about, you know, should he have testified at all? If Robert Mueller wasn't sitting in that room, we wouldn't be talking about this. The New York Times wouldn't be covering it. Right. We'd be talking about Ilhan Omar. Exactly. So it's like the necessity of of attention focusing on the report, this is the mechanism to sort of refocus attention. And so I just don't think that that can actually be, could have been done without sort of the spectacle um, of him testifying. And I think you have to think about, all right, you know, what are the, what were the two objectives that, that the either side had to accomplish and who did it better. So the GOP's objective clearly seemed to be they wanted to somehow sort of uh, impeach Mueller's credibility, make him seem like he was biased. They failed spectacularly at that. If anything, the fact that he sort of seemed confused and uncharismatic dramatically undercut this notion that he's like a deep state denizen that's, you know, secretly out to organize this plot against the president. Right? And actually, you already see some Republicans talking to, starting to talk about, oh, well, Aaron, uh, Aaron Zebley clearly is the one who actually ran all of this, right, and sort of pivoting to that. And so I think it totally took the wind out of the sails because, you know, he was just he was clearly earnest. He had nothing to hide. He didn't look cagey about how they'd conducted the investigation. And so I think that was basically an utter failure on their part. So to the extent that they made him look confused and sort of diminished his stature, which I, I agree is sad, sure, they accomplished that, but that didn't actually serve their their larger goals. But and- surely the metric of success for Democrats is not having done better than Jim Jordan. Or Louis Gohmert. <laughs> right, like. no, but, but whenever we're talking about headlines like Mueller disappoints yeah. the Dems and this was a big defeat and this and as if sort but of this is the turning point. Well, that gets back I, to the framing issue that Tammy complained yeah, about too, doesn't it? It does. I mean, I feel like that comes out of the idea that he was there as a tool for the Democrats in a political battle with the White House. That's the framing. But he that was I think, also. I mean, yes, he – they – pushed him to testify despite his own preferences because of that, yes. But I also think that this agenda-setting function that Susan was just laying out is a really, really important one to focus on. Um, And I I think that the fact that Republicans were kind of put in the position of having to do on the one hand whataboutism and on the other hand, since they couldn't undermine the credibility of the facts in the report, and they couldn't contest them outright. They All they could do was make the author of the report look bad. You know, I, I think that was also an agenda-setting 
item. And, and you know, they chose that strategy. I think they chose it not so much because they were trying to shape public opinion, but because they were playing to an audience of one, the guy in his bathrobe in the upstairs of the White House watching the hearing. And that's what he has chosen to do, is to try and discredit the entire investigation. They were not able to discredit the entire investigation in these hearings. They they sort of tried a number of times to get into issues that they thought would would help them do that. And because he kept saying, not my, you know, not my bailiwick, outside my scope, you know, not going to talk about that, they just weren't able to get any traction on that. I don't think even the questions that they framed were particularly sharp. You know, so I, I think it was like Demo- Democrats are trying to set an agenda in terms of the the public conversation. And that's important because if you are thinking about it in terms of a political dogfight, it's important because the president is such an agenda setter. He gets up every morning and tweets and sets the agenda for the cable news for the next 24 hours. And yesterday was a day when he was not able to do that. They set the agenda and the agenda was the president is not exonerated and Russia is is meddling in our elections and we and we need to pay closer attention to that. And I think those are two really important agenda items for us to talk about. Shane, your earlier point where you said, you know, you thought that the average citizen who turned who turned in would wouldn't be sort of more they would they would still be confused. They, they wouldn't sort of have that elucidation. And I go back to an observation that our colleague Margaret Taylor made last night, which you know, she was saying, look, if you're sort of an observer who came to watch that hearing, you didn't watch that hearing and got the sense like there's no there there. Like right. nothing really right. happened. Right. It was all a witch hunt. This was a whole lot of nothing. And I agree, it, it 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 didn't do the job of really educating people and walking them through it. But I don't see how anybody could have watched that and thought like, eh, no, this is like a no whole lot deal. of nothing. Yeah. And the Dems are overstating this. I, I just don't buy that that's the, – the, you know, maybe there aren't that many genuine open minds to be captured in the first instance. Well, that's but the question. The people who are sort of tuning in to kind of get that impression, I, I don't think that uh, that they could have possibly concluded there's nothing to this. Let, go ahead, and I want to spend a moment on something that Mueller actually affirmatively talked about. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I look. I agree that anybody who spends quality time with this material will, if they have a remotely open mind, come away disturbed. And the more time you spend with the material, the more disturbed you come away with. I just do wonder whether five hours or six hours of this format with this witness, with these constraints, is an efficient uh, way to engage people with the material. So there is a point where Mueller really leaned in and frankly even – started offering policy recommendations. There was only one area Mm. and it's not surprising because it's the one that he spent time emphasizing in his brief remarks back in May and that's on Russian interference in the election. And he made very clear not only that this was an attack on the very foundations of our political and democratic system but that they're doing it right now. I want to spend some time thinking about this in, in, in light of how The way I approached this was in the first hearing, it's almost like he seemed to not want to wade too far into the obstruction piece because he understood what a very pitched political battle that is. Whereas in the second piece, like almost as as if he thought, 
everybody should be able to agree that Russia attacking the election is bad, okay? And, I, and I, that's not a partisan issue. I, I wonder if you guys think that he did an effective job of sounding the alarm about that or if he needs to do more. One way I've often thought about the Mueller report is it's the closest thing that we're going to get to a 9-11 commission style investigation of a huge consequential event. But we have lacked an actual spokesperson or narrator for those findings. And this is probably all we're going to see from him. So, you know, Tammy, do you think it was strong enough? And did people get the message that he's kind of putting, you know, a big siren up on top of this? Um, I don't think he has the personal style that is going to be that flashing red light. So I think within the framework of his personality and the way he sees his role and, you know, the limits of what he wanted to do yesterday, then yes, he did that. But I actually think that he did that in a context in which there are other people also trying to do that right now. And, um, you know, so I think you've seen members of Congress kind of banging that drum over the last week or so, perhaps partly in preparation for this hearing or knowing that this hearing was going to give that um, that issue a spotlight. But I also want to pause a moment on DNI Coates, who, you know, appointed finally a, an election security czar figure um, right. in the intelligence com- community. And you could say it was overdue, but, you know, I wonder whether President Trump realizes that DNI Coates did him a huge favor by making that appointment before this hearing. Because otherwise, you would have Mueller up there talking to the Intelligence Committee about how significant this threat is and how significant the impact was in 2016. And the Democrats would have been able to turn right around and say, and they're not doing anything about it. And and DNI Coates gave the president a gift there. And I, I think the president probably doesn't appreciate it. Yeah, but let's be honest about one thing, which is that it doesn't matter what the federal government does in countering election interference if the president of the United States welcomes that interference, if political candidates think it's no big deal to accept hacked materials from foreign, uh, you know, from, from hostile foreign adversaries. And so a little bit, there's almost this sort of like fragmented or sort of or sort of at an alternate reality approach in which we're acting as though well there's like there's of course the question of the president's conduct and then there's the serious policy question of how we're going to deal with election interference as if at their core these are not two related things and i think that was one big takeaway of sort of the the hipsy you know sort of hearing which certainly focused more on volume 1 which is until we confront what happened in 2016, until we confront what the president of the United States did in 2016, all this other stuff is like, it's just not going to get the job done because the the challenge is so monumental because it's so norms-based, because the, the sort of the need for executive-level deterrence sort of against foreign adversaries is so high. And so I think there is a little bit of sort of a temptation to say, well, this is this should be bipartisan. And so if we can just put away the Trump piece of it and focus on the threat, somehow we can actually address it. And a little bit what I worry about is if you take away the Trump piece, if you take away 
what happened here and, and I thought Schiff did a really good job and, and you know, said, look, I don't use the term disloyal to this country lightly, but that's what happened. And and so I, I do think that that's going to be part of the challenge moving forward, that if, if we don't confront this sort of first principles thing, I, I don't see how we get to the real solutions to this huge challenge. Yeah. So here's my question. What percentage of the value of the entire testimony was in Adam Schiff's last five minutes of it? Mm, um, yeah. You know, that is I, I like would the thing have been more m- more powerful, less powerful or as powerful if you had just lopped off and said, OK, we're going to do this 10-minute co- public colloquy with Adam Schiff and we're not going to do any of the rest – you know, I think the 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 number of minutes that were important, and those were a lot of them, were were really small. They tended to be concentrated at the end, probably because Mueller was more comfortable and because you were out of the area of obstruction and sort of more in the area where he clearly felt more comfortable talking. But there was an exchange with uh, Representative Quigley that was substantial. There was a, uh, an exchange with Representative Demings that was pretty interesting. And the thing culminates in a very powerful exchange with, with Schiff. And, and I, I do think if I have a criticism of the way the Democrats organized it, it's actually that they backloaded uh, a lot of what turned out to be the most interesting stuff uh, at the very end of the second hearing when I suspect many fewer people were watching. Let's spend a little bit of time too on <clears> – <throat> not too much because I don't want to go overboard on this. But the Republican questioning, which seemed to be designed to do two things. One – All to challenge your Mifsud story. Yeah, yeah, yeah right. Well, that's it, was exa- it was all about like, you. Should. It yeah. was all about – you know, showing the importance of Washington Post intelligence reporting <laughs> right. on Joseph Mifsud. Yeah, we may have gotten some more traffic out of that story, so it may have shown back up on the homepage. But I mean, it really seemed designed to do, you know, two things, right? Which is to one, undermine the credibility of Bob Mueller and the team, and the other was to insert these, I mean, I'll just say, because I've spent years investigating this, absolutely baseless and bizarro theories about, about these just random motley assortment of characters that you know some people seem to think have pulled the wool over everyone's eyes and are hiding the fact that this investigation, you know, was the product of some conspiracy between, you know, a, you know, deep state people and Obama holdovers. I mean, you know, there's just no evidence of any of that, and there's evidence to the contrary. So I'm curious, you know. Who do you guys think that was intended for? Is it for the audience of one in the bathrobe sitting up in the residence? Uh, because, I mean, clearly, I think, look, even people I know who are who would say that they are Republicans first and sort of maybe secondarily supporters of the president, I don't think they're buying into this stuff. And there's also nothing in here that's going to make anybody who I think didn't know anything about the investigation to tune in and be like, oh, my God, I should learn more about this Joseph Mipsy character. So I actually completely disagree with you. I think what is driving this is not even that you know, a single person in a bathroom, Uncle Grumpy. Uncle Grumpy. Wow, that's a nickname game. You're one-upping the president. Finds it appealing. I think there's a group of people who actually believe this crap. And I think one of them is the attorney general. 
And I think uh, a bunch of them are on that committee or on those committees. So this is just genuine interrogation. It is, you know, it is, you don't want to face the reality that, you know, the president did some awful things and so, and, and benefited from some really awful things. And so you fixate on little things that can throw dust up in the air, yeah. including in your own mind. And and I think it is at once in bad faith and weirdly sincere. And I think Jim Jordan actually believes all that crap. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't. <coughs> um, and I go back. So, so which of us is giving him less credit here? Um, so – I go back a little bit to um, Robert Mueller's sort of definition of conspiracy and coordination and what requires an actual agreement where you sit down and you decide between one another, hey, this is the story we're going to tell and here's how we're going to do this and here's how we're going to go about it. And how much of coordination is just kind of two sides doing things publicly so that the other people can see what's going on and everybody coordinates themselves in response. And I think what we saw was coordination yesterday. They are chumming the waters with the favored conspiracy theories, the conspiracy theories that they feel like there's going to be there's going to be the most meat there in part because there is pieces of credible reporting on sort of the mysteries of it, right? So if you just drive people down info wars, you're not going to capture the people. Ooh, Washington Post reporter Shane Harris, that's a, you know, an upstanding and credible person, you know, and people, people... have opinions about me and where I work. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, but 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 there are going to be some people that are going to say, "Wait, what's this misusing?" Oh, well, I mean the Washington Post, that can't be crazy, right? And so you it's it's sort of coordinated around that. It's taking advantage of, you know, the way intelligence information is handled and the things that the United States government is never going to confirm or deny regardless. And Devin Nunes and Jim Jordan knows that full well. And so what that performance was about was chumming the waters for the right wing media ecosystem to start get going. All right, here, guys, here's the thing we're all going after to sort of start working together on it and, and to use this as as a platform to to kind of continue to move forward on that. Which, end. by the way, sounds like exactly what the Kremlin would like to happen. Mm. Precisely. <laughs> Can I go back for a second to a point that you made earlier, Susan, about that you made the argument that it doesn't matter what the federal government does to address election security if the president is encouraging and accepting help from a foreign power. And I don't want to make the argument that there's no connection. There is obviously in the 2016, in the narrative of the Mueller report, there is a very clear connection. But what I would say is that what the Russians did in 2016 and what is laid out in the report is not only the WikiLeaks dump and the stuff that the Republicans used in the campaign. It's also all of the disruption, all of the fake Facebook groups and the fake rallies and the stoking of divisions. And all of that was going on as well and, and had a huge impact on the American public's faith in our own democratic system as well as in the outcome of the election. And I think it's important to focus on that because I think that part of the alarm bell that's 
that Mueller was ringing, that the report rings, that members of Congress are now trying to kind of amplify is about that. And that is about public education and public awareness so that people are more skeptical, so that they check sources before they share news, so that there's more pressure on social media organizations to vet the content on their platforms and the accounts on their platforms. And, you know, and here's maybe where I am being Pollyannish, but I can't help but think that to the extent that not only Democrats, but anyone who cares about this issue does continue to spotlight the extent, the scope of Russian interference, doesn't that create a little bit of pressure on candidates to say at least that they will not accept such help? I mean, yes, the president's going to do what the president's going to do. He's shameless. But you don't think it creates an environment that's at least a little more hostile to candidates just diving into that sewer? So I, I don't I don't mean to say it doesn't do anything or that it's pointless or it doesn't accomplish something. I would put it in the category of necessary but not sufficient, right? And so if you don't have this sort of critical piece, yes, it's important. Yes, we should do everything we can. But that it's not going to really get the job done if you're if you're missing this piece, which is a normative buy-in across parties and, and a buy-in that, that really comes from the top. And that was, you know, that was one of Mueller's dramatic moments yesterday is when he said, I hope this isn't the new normal, but right. I fear that it is. But I, I want to make one point that's going to sound like absurd log rolling and self-congratulation. And it's only mildly absurd log rolling and self-congratulation. <laughs> it's entirely appropriate log rolling um, and self-congratulation. And that's that, you know, we released this podcast last Friday um, where we're sort of adapting the Mueller report into kind of a narrative series. As of this morning, I think we're at close to 300,000 downloads. It was number one on the iTunes charts for three days. I mean, just a completely overwhelming reaction and one that frankly took us by surprise. And I think proves one really, really important point. And that's the hunger for people to understand this report. And that People are still interested. They're still struggling. They get that it's important and they need mechanisms to engage with it and that Congress has to lead that education and it's not done. It's not that we're two years into this and everybody's sick of talking about it. They are not sick of talking about it and I can show you the numbers to prove it to you. And so there's some distance between a weird seven-hour Mueller hearing that kind of goes all over the place and like how we're, you know, killing it on the iTunes charts. But I do think that there's a message here, which is the public still cares. The basic message that you're talking about, Tammy, people need to understand what happened and why it cannot happen in the future. That's still really important. And so, yes, there's this whole part about holding the president accountable and the constitutional functions of Congress and sort of in constraining the executive and all of that stuff. But but that education function is is not over. And, and it is just a myth that the public has moved on. Susan's message to the congressional hearings 
get into podcast production. Ditch this whole hearing thing. Just start Just producing. It's all about <laughs> iTunes now. Um, this last bit here, let's talk about where we go now from here. I mean, Susan, you used the analogy of a torch being passed. Um, <clears throat> and I know you said on Twitter yesterday and you said, well, some might consider this overly optimistic. You did think that there would be a groundswell of movement towards impeachment. I will say I am – I do not share your – I do not. Your confidence on that. I think if anything, actually, this may have diminished the movement towards impeachment. But, let's, you know, we don't have to take it as an impeachment thing. But, like, you know, sticking with this idea that you said of a kind of a torch being passed almost from Mueller to Congress, what do you think happens now that we've gotten through, which is – Clearly, this historical, momentous moment, and he's not coming back. Like, that's all we're going to hear from Bob Mueller. What happens now? Yeah, so two things. So one, I want to defend my Pollyanna-ish on the ground cell <laughs> for could, It's also because you were, like, never the pollyanna I'm person. never this person. Um, <laughs> and that's that what matters here is not the shift in public opinion. Of course there wasn't a shift in public opinion. Of course there aren't people marching in the streets. That's not what matters. What matters here is Nancy Pelosi's control over her caucus. And she has managed to artificially deflate calls for impeachment by being really, really clear that she doesn't want it to happen. And she has a lot of discipline and a lot of control. And even in that context, she hasn't fully been able to sort of hold that stuff at bay. And so I think what yesterday was and, and what, why I'm hopeful that this actually does become the moment in which we start to hear people, more and more people, uh, you know, talk about impeachment and start to call for impeachment is it's the point at which kicking the can down the road further becomes absurd. And Nancy Pelosi this morning and yesterday appears to be sort of offering, well, we want to litigate Don McGahn's subpoenas. This is ridiculous, right? The first sort of kicking the can was, well, we need the unredacted Mueller report. Then it's, well, we need to do the Mazars litigation. Then it was, well, we need Mueller to come in and testify. Now it's, oh, we need to litigate for Don McGahn. Just be honest. This is totally about stall tactics. It's frankly insulting that you would even, that she would even believe her members or the American public would believe that this is some sort of genuine, oh, yes, well, we're going to break the logjam with Don McGahn's subpoenas. First of all, starting impeachment inquiries puts them in a materially stronger position in those litigations. And and if they were really serious about sort of breaking the logjam, they would be starting not with the hardest testimony, which is Don McGahn, but the easiest testimony, which is Corey Lewandowski. And so what, the reason why I think that this can be a turning point is because I didn't see Democrats in that hearing room that were ready to move on from this. I saw a group of Democrats that were frustrated, that understood what was in that report that understood why it was why it mattered and weren't ready to move on. And so I just don't think that I don't think Nancy Pelosi is going to be able to hold this off for much longer. I don't think people are going to be sort of fooled by this. Well, we're playing the long game here. I think people know this is the moment of truth. You either decide you're going to move to impeachment now. And I do mean now. I mean, in the next calendar week style now, or you have lost the opportunity forever. And that's just the reality of what is happening here. Now, whether or not that actually occurs or not, like, we'll find out, I guess, sooner rather than later. In terms of sort of the specific next steps, 
whether or not it takes the immediate form of this is a formal impeachment inquiry or rather, you know, now we're organizing ourselves headed in that direction, I do think that it turns to calling in those fact witnesses. Because I think what this hearing proved is when you get a new person in that hearing room and force them to tell the part of the story in their voice, you get media attention, you get public attention. Whenever the job here is to go over and over again, sort of go through the nitty-gritty of this report, start educating the American people on it, you got to get Corey Lewandowski in there. you got to get Don Jr. you got to get Hope Hicks. You have to get Don McGahn. And that they're just going to have to be methodical and focused. Um, and they're going to have to care about it. And they're going to have to care about it in the face of a uh, Speaker of the House that is absolutely committed at this point, it seems, to not doing the job the Constitution asks of her. And, and I say that as someone with a lot of admiration for Nancy Pelosi's political uh, instincts and, and sort of her service and, and record to the country. My my conviction that she is blowing this has never been stronger. And and my conviction that the members are, are smarter than that and are going to move her in the right direction, uh, that honestly just comes down to sort of a, a question of faith. So, Ben, <clears throat> clearly the speaker has calculated that pursuing impeachment is politically suicidal or it will be hugely damaging to their prospects, the Democrats' prospects in 2020. So do you agree with Susan that she's blowing it here? I mean, is impeachment – I guess another way of putting this is let's presume Nancy Pelosi's right and feel free to say if you think she's wrong that this is politically risky. Is impeachment worth losing the White House again to Donald Trump. But hold on. Where's the evidence for this? Where's the evidence? Well, no, no, I'm not that's saying there is. That is clearly her, her, theory. Theory. her theory. You could argue her theory. But that is what she's predicating her steps on. I think that's indisputable. So, so I, I think I disagree with most but not all of what Susan just said. And I'm trying to, through uh, a little bit of sleep deprivation, kind of figure out what parts of it are in each category. Let me let me sketch out what I think is yeah is is Pelosi's thinking. I don't think Pelosi is unalterably opposed to impeachment. I think Pelosi is playing a waiting game and is is a skeptic that moving decisively toward impeachment is good for her, not just for the party's prospects against Donald Trump, but for the marginal members whose districts she has to defend. And I think her posture is she wants to get to impeachment if they get there because they are forced to in a fashion that the public will not blame them for rushing there. And I don't know whether that is a good calculation politically or a bad calculation. I I don't think I'm a good enough political analyst to have strong feelings about it. But I think her calculation is let's let these litigations go forward. Let's let the fact witnesses go forward, which is stuff we would have to do anyway if we're going to impeach. And then in the fall at the, you know, we can see if we're in that position where we can honestly say we've been backed into this corner and we would have we would have loved not to be there but I don't want to be the Newt Gingrich figure who you know looked at looked at impeachment as this really exciting uh diving you know like pool of water and just dove in head first at the first opportunity that he could and I I think it's a really interesting question whether that's a, a correct 
analysis or an incorrect analysis. It's certainly not a principled analysis. It's certainly not an analysis that you look at and you say, ah, Nancy Pelosi has planted the flag of right and 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 principle here. But I, you know, this is a deeply, deeply political position that she's in, and she's caught between a lot of warring constituencies. Am I comfortable with it? No. Do I think impeachment is the right answer? Yes. But I'm less harsh about it than Susan's uh, formulation. Yeah, I have to say I I mostly agree with your analysis, Ben, of where Nancy Pelosi is likely coming from in her political judgment. In other words, that she is concerned about marginal districts that swung to the Democrats significantly in 2018 and that it matters deeply holding those districts in 2020. And it will matter no matter who wins the White House. And so therefore, it has to be a priority. And she's the Speaker of the House. And no, it will not be anyone else's top priority. And it's not anyone else's bottom line responsibility. It's hers. And so I, I think it's probably true that that's what she's weighing in this. And I don't think she's wrong. But I also like, OK, I'm not a lawyer. I don't work, you know, I don't look at this through a constitutional lens. I understand both from that perspective and from the perspective of the democratic base, why it feels both urgent, necess- you know, necessary and morally satisfying to say it's time to impeach. Let's open an impeachment inquiry. But when I step back from it and I think about it just as an, an American and observer of this process – I'm not sure there's a functional difference for me between the hearings that were held yesterday, you know, and other hearings that judiciary and HIPSI might hold with these fact witnesses and impeachment hearings. Now, you may tell me that impeachment hearings, because they're impeachment hearings, have different rules or allow you to do things in a different way or improve your litigating position. And that might be true. But as an like as a voter, as a political actor observing this process, I'm not sure there's a functional difference in terms of what narrative gets built for the public. And I do think that, you know, as I said at the outset, yesterday was a picture of Congress doing its job. It's incremental. It's partisan. It's incredibly frustratingly slow. But that is how political institutions work in a democratic system when they're working well, because it allows for the emergence of agreement on facts, which, Susan, you noted is so important. And it allows for things to happen ultimately because people feel like they have to and therefore they make the compromises that they wouldn't make at an earlier phase. And that's what allows the system to survive. So when I think about this in terms of this, you know, the health of the democratic system, I think it's much, much better to do it this way than to say, God damn it, this guy sucks and we're going to impeach him right now. I think the problem is that the Constitution offers the House of Representatives a one blunt instrument and you get one, you get an opportunity to say either this conduct is impeachable conduct or it is not impeachable conduct. And there is not some, whenever we're talking about the kinds of things we're seeing here, there's not some fine line and, and sort of distinguishing between hearings to draw. And, and I, I really do believe that this is one of those moments that um, we're going to we're going to find out if it, if it stands the test of history. History in, in a constitutional structural sense. Well, I know where we go from here. Object lessons. I didn't even ask you guys if you have object lessons. I have one. 
Go for it. Do you have any? Am I the lone object lesson? No, well, I have an object lesson. <laughs> no, no, you don't. I do. No, you don't. I do. No, no, no. You're just, you're just thinking something up right now. No. Is it going to be weird? No. <laughs> All right, Shane, you go first. Something you stole from a plane? <laughs> no. <laughs> My object lesson, actually, I was going to do this last week, so it's a couple of weeks old, is uh, the Bank of England has announced uh, that the next person to grace the 50-pound note is going to be Alan Turing. Did you guys hear this? Woo-hoo! That is wonderful. That yes. is awesome. Alan Turing, which listeners of the podcast I'm sure will already know. Um, gosh, how do we talk about him? Basically, godfather of modern computing. And cryptography. Uh, the cryptography is sort of the brains behind the operation that broke the German Enigma code in World War II and probably saved hundreds of thousands of lives and hastened the end of the war. Uh, Alan Turing, uh, for his heroic service to his nation, was mercilessly persecuted as a homosexual, which was illegal at the time, chemically castrated, probably blackmailed by the police, uh, and basically— And forced to take estrogen. Yeah. Um, for a protracted period of time leading to his suicide. Absolutely. So driven to the grave by the country that he devoted his life to. So uh, it's been a long time coming, but there has, of course, there's the government has officially apologized for this. And there's been this sort of really kind of uh, inspiring uh, and reemergence of the Alan Turing story over the past 10 years or so. There's a great documentary by a friend of mine, Patrick Salmon, called Codebreaker, which you can check out. And there's other great stuff on Turing uh, as well. But uh, that's pretty cool. So a whole new generation uh, and older generations obviously do. Britons are going to see his face on their money and remember who he is. And, I think that's and they're going to say, that's not Benedict Cumberbatch. <laughs> <laughs> they do kind of like bear a weird, well, I mean, maybe sort of, kind of, close enough. All right, what's your weird object? I don't, it's not even a weird object. <laughs> so listeners of this feed know that earlier this week, we posted on the feed the first episode of the report. My object lesson is the second episode of the report and the accompanying notice that we will not be posting future episodes of the report on the rational security feed. So if you want to listen to the report, and by the way, the second episode is super awesome and features uh, the great Ben Buchanan analyzing all kinds of issues related to the actual Russian hacking operations. Tom Ridd comes back. It's, it's a really interesting uh, episode. It's, uh, it's uh, informative in a lot of ways. But you're going to have to listen to it either on the Lawfare podcast feed or on uh, the report's own feed, which, by the way, you should rate and review on iTunes because this is how we uh, actually are getting it distributed. And as Susan pointed out, a lot of people are seeing it and you can help that. So that is my object lesson. It's a perfectly legitimate, it's totally thought, thought through in advance, perfectly came here with the object. object. It's not the object that I could have done, which was to reprise the uh, Mueller devotional candle that is sitting oh, on yeah. our table. And I did think about doing a second object, but that's like object lesson redux. Yeah. And that's cheating. But if you want to see a picture of it, 
I tweeted it. Tammy, yeah. Tammy exactly. tweeted it. So it, uh, it's like two object lessons for the price of one. I have a very short object lesson, and that is um, that Tammy and I were at a meeting earlier this week, um, and I it was off the record, so I won't go into excessive details, but it was um, a meeting of really impressive thinkers on sort of national security, foreign policy, sort of grand strategy issues. Grand strategy. Grand strategy. Um, and we were sitting in the room, and I was looking across at Tammy, and for the first time ever – that room had more women than men in it. Um, yes. And it was like barely even noted at the time, um, but was... There was, no co- there was no explicit reference made to that fact throughout the two days. Huh. But it was one of the most like incredible engagements and just really incredible minds in that room. Um, and, you know, it was just a nice moment. So. That's cool. That was the first time you've like, in a meeting like of that nature that you've okay. seen. I've been in this Did field you? for 20 years. This is the first cool. time I have been in a seminar that is with majority women on international relations in U.S. That reminds policy. me there was a hearing years ago. <clears throat> I think it was a hearing of the deputies of various intelligence agencies. Do I have this right? Where – I can't remember if it was the Senate Intelligence Committee or not. But they stopped. The chairman stopped, I think, and remarked the fact he was like, hold on a second. Every person at this panel is a woman. And they kind of looked around each other and were like, huh, yeah, you're right. Interesting. That would have been in the last administration. <laughs> it's not this administration. But there's sort of a similar moment where they're like, huh, fancy that. How about that? That's super cool. Uh, well, that brings us to the end of the podcast. Thanks for hanging in there with us on the big Mueller Week. Rational Security is, of course, brought to you by Lawfare. You can find our show page at lawfareblog.com. You can get Rational Security devotional candles. No, you can't. 50-pound <laughs> notes. <laughs> no, you can get the devotional candles on Etsy. Oh, good. And the rest at lawfaregeneralstore.co. <laughs> They're all on sale now. Lawfarestore.com. <laughs> you can follow us on Twitter at R-A-T-L Security. You can down- find us on Facebook. Whenever you download the podcast from your favorite podcasting service, please be sure to leave a rating and review. That really helps us out. And remember to go download the report at its own podcast feed or from Lawfare. The audio engineer this week was Michaela Fogel. The show is produced and edited by Jen Patia Howell. Music this week by Bob Muller in his rendition of what else? Happy Trails. Aww. He's riding off into the sunset. Enjoy your vacation, That's Bob. Good, Enjoy your retirement. You, you don't think it should be don't fence me in? <laughs> I think don't fence me in or I'll be seeing you. <laughs> There's so many. I was actually sitting here downloading from Spotify farewell songs. How about, <laughs> There's some really good ones. How about when you're young at heart? Oh, that's a really good one, too. Oh, I like that. I like that. Well, I'm sure Sophia Yam would be happy to play keys for all of those. On behalf of our good for my good friends, your good friends, Tomorrow Kaufman, what has been with us, and Susan Hennessy, I'm Shane Harris. We'll talk to you next week. Goodbye. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. 